relatively recently, when we were Homo sapiens, not Neanderthals, or something like 100,000 years ago, that's when we started to exploit marine resources. Hello, I'm Greg Stone, and for this week I've got my very good friend, Dr. Jared Diamond. Jared, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me into your home and letting me invade with this film crew that nobody can see but you and I. <laughs> you and I have a connection on a number of levels in life, one of which is we're both from Boston. Uh, we were born there, but now we're here. Uh, the timing is perfect because last night my son, who's living in Boston and has a girlfriend who's not from Boston, asked me to have a phone conversation with him, Max, and his girlfriend demonstrating Boston accents. And so we rehearsed, park your car in the Harvard Yard, park your car at Method, not Medford, but Method. Method, yeah. <laughs> no D. Method, yeah, I remember that quite well. And that's really kind of a neat thing. Here we are, two Boston boys, and now we're out here on the West Coast. We both live in L.A. We both study the world around us, you through uh, anthropology mm -hmm. and birds, and of course me through the ocean. But what's brought us here is, is the ocean today, and I would wonder if you could just tell me a little right. bit about your connection to the ocean when you first became aware of it growing up in Boston, the origin story. That's easy to remember, Greg, because growing up in Boston, my father would take us in the summer on vacations, and our vacations were almost always on the coast. First vacation that I can recall was at Taunton, followed by two years at Woods Hole, which meant that I would go along the beach and gather shells and see fish. Then we had several years at Bar Harbor, <laughs> Mount Desert Island on the yep. coast of Maine, where I would go out actually fishing. One of the most exciting moments there was catching a soft shell lobster on a fishing line with hook. We also saw gigantic jellyfishes, at least they seemed to me gigantic at the time. Oh, and then on the beach in Nantasket. Um, in retrospect, the ocean was so cold then that nowadays I wouldn't go into it without a wetsuit because I need a wetsuit even to go into the ocean off New Guinea, but in those days I was used to it. And then subsequently, once I started um, working in New Guinea and the Solomons, um, I had a number of trips, first in the Siassi Islands off eastern New Guinea, running back and forth on boats, in the Solomon Islands, then running back and forth between islands, and then finally in 1986, a whole project in the Raja Ampat Islands of, of New Guinea. I can't help but mention here, you mentioned Nantasket, <laughs> which is a beach just south of Boston, and I can't believe you mentioned that. that that's actually where I first saw the ocean. And I remember to this day, I was about seven or eight years old, because we didn't actually live in Boston, we lived out in uh, Walpole. It took a while to get there, and it wasn't a routine thing. But my parents took me to the ocean when I was about seven years old. My cousin lived in Hingham, right next to Nantasket Beach. And that's the first place I ever saw the ocean. My cousin had two flippers and two masks. So we each got one flipper, and we each had a mask, and we went out, and that's where I fell in love with the ocean. Talking about origins, you know, I like to think back in time. I always like to do these, like, thought experiments. You know, what was it like for humans back in Africa, let's say, before we made the great exodus? Once we became modern some several hundred thousand years ago, and our world was as far as we could see. So you had to get up on top of a hill, and that's really what, what you could see. Today we have Google Earth looking down. We really have a much better sense of what's around us. And you've talked to me often about how we were constrained by land, terrestrial animals, but then we began to venture out into the ocean. And you've, you've said some interesting things about visibility and, and the, the effect that visibility of islands might have had on these early human tribes. Can you tell me more about that? Because actually I don't fully understand it. Sure. 
perhaps to begin with a, with a modern example, uh, this is a beautiful short story by the French writer Guy de Maupassant, uh -huh. who wrote short stories. And one of his really touching short stories is entitled Happiness. The first two paragraphs begin with someone asking, is it possible for a couple to remain happy forever? And the teller of the story says, yes, and here's an example. They're on the coast of the Mediterranean. He looks out in the distance, and there, an enormous mass rising from the mist. And the person on the coast says, that's Corsica. You can see it only two or three times a year, but it's emerging from the, the clouds now. We can see Corsica, dozens of miles off. And Corsica reminds me that in Corsica, I met a couple in a remote area. She had given up her life to be with him. But this illustrates that, yes, you can be happy for a long time. But it all starts with the view of Corsica. When I think of traditional people, so they were on the coast, why on earth would they do something as dangerous as getting into a boat or on a log mm. or on a raft? Certainly, initially, they would do it only if they could see land out there to go out without land being visible is, is literally suicidal. Mm. And that means that the parts of the world where people would be motivated to use boats would be the parts of the world where there are islands to see. There are really only two parts of the world where there are lots of islands that you can see from the mainland. One is the Mediterranean with Corsica, Sicily, mm -hmm. Crete, and Cyprus. And the other is Southeast Asia and the New Guinea region, which are just dotted with islands as you go from the Malay Peninsula out to the Solomon Islands, past Indonesia and New Guinea, always an island is visible from the previous island until you reach the end of the Solomons, which is the end of visibility. And not surprisingly, I think, the Mediterranean and Southeast Asia, New Guinea, those are the two parts of the world where there were great traditional navigators, Europeans and then ultimately the Polynesians. Whereas Africans themselves apparently never reached Madagascar because it was invisible. Native Americans were not ocean-going, mm. and Australians were not ocean-going. I think this is the effect of island visibility on behavior, but it then raises the question, why would anybody set out to sea like the Polynesians where there's nothing visible? And everybody talks about Polynesians, but there were right. others than, besides yeah. Polynesians, right? Who were the first ones? Tell me about that story of going out and coming back. And sure. Be before there were Polynesians, um, Greg, there are two or three cases of people colonizing islands that were invisible. But in two of those cases, there were nevertheless warning signs. One was the colonization of Australia from Timor. Timor is 200 miles from Australia. There's no way that you're going to see Australia from Timor. Um, people got out to Timor by stepping stones from the Malay Peninsula. You can see each island from the previous island until you get out to Timor. And then at Timor, there's a 200-mile gap. How did people ever colonize Australia 50,000 years ago across that gap? But one possibility, because Australia is dry, particularly the northwest coast, there were brush fires. And there were enormous brush fires. And the oh. brush fires let off smoke. So it's possible that the clue to people on Timor that there was something oh. out there was the brush fire. The first fire. smoke signal. The first smoke signal, that's right. <laughs> then, as people spread out to New Guinea, and then spread from New Guinea to the Bismarcks, to the Solomons. Between the Bismarcks and the Solomons, there's a gap of maybe 100 miles or so yeah. where there may not have been visibility. But on the other side of that gap was a Bougainville. And Bougainville has Mount Balby. And Mount Balby blows off. So a warning sign for the people on New Ireland would be 
the volcanic dust, the intermittent explosions. That's the second sign. So there's intermittent signs. But then comes the case, the Polynesians, going out across gaps where there's absolutely no possibility of, of fire storms or of volcanic explosions. That's when the ancestors of the Polynesians, the so-called Lapita people, went from the Solomons 700 miles out to Fiji. Across 700 miles, you don't see fires, you don't see volcanoes. What would have induced them to do this apparently suicidal thing? Yeah. Well, these people were hunters as well as farmers, and hunters would have noticed the huge swarms of millions of seabirds, shearwaters, coming in once a year and then going in the other direction once a year. And because they were good naturalists, they would have figured out that where there were shearwaters coming in in huge numbers every year, there must have been land out there and land that supported these millions of shearwaters. So a speculation is that what induced people to head out into nothing from the southeastern Solomons was the shearwaters. So they were following the patterns of natural wild animals and putting together their knowledge that there's got to be something there if the birds are coming from there Yeah, because we see them elsewhere. Didn't they sail upwind mostly? Didn't they always want a return ticket home somehow? I, I heard something yeah. about that. They were apparently clever about it. In the settlement of Polynesia, the end result we know, that the Polynesians discovered every habitable scrap of land in the Pacific up to the sub-Antarctic region. Tiny scraps like Pitcairn Island, which is what, three miles across. How did they manage to discover every tiny scrap of land? Again, there were clues as you would on the open ocean, even if you couldn't see land, there, there were nevertheless seabirds of which some species go 75 miles from land and others 50 and others 25, 10 miles. So even if there's no land visible, but they see, say, boobies or frigate birds, they know that there's land over there and then what they'll do. And I've done this in the Solomons. You wait until late afternoon and then the frigate birds go back to the roost. So you see where the frigate birds are heading. Yeah. That tells you that land is there. But still, you have to pick a path into the open ocean and you don't want it to be suicidal. It's thought that what the Polynesians did was that they would do their exploration at times of year when the winds were about to change. And so they could, they could set out with the wind behind them, but they didn't want to turn back when the wind was still carrying them away. When the winds were about to change, they would go out 2,000 miles with the winds behind them, confident that the winds were about to change. When the winds changed, then they would come back and have a ride all the way back. So they had a guaranteed return ticket home after their exploration. If they didn't, because they didn't always find an island, presumably, right? I would not say guaranteed, Greg. Yeah. The, the guesstimates are that the, the death toll from Polynesian exploration was, was 90% died. Wow. And maybe 10% found something. But the canoe that found Hawaii, if there were, what, 60 people on the canoe and 30 were men and there was differential mating, so one of the men, you know. Once you get there and you arrive in Hawaii, the canoe that found Hawaii left behind millions of descendants. So the payoff was enormous. Right, oh, I see, I see. For the colonization from New Guinea eastwards, it was all Polynesians. But by the time that Europeans got into the Pacific, islands like Vanuatu and Fiji were occupied 
not by Polynesians, not just by Polynesians, but by so-called Melanesians, by people who look like New Guineans. It's clear, in fact, from the archaeology that the first people to get to Fiji were the ancestors of the Polynesians, recognized by their pottery, the so-called Lapita pottery. But after they got there, there was trading back and forth. And we know that because way out at Fiji and Tonga, there is obsidian from islands off Manus and islands off New Britain. Um, Talisea obsidian from off New Britain is all the way out to Tonga, but also Talisea obsidian is in Borneo. So the people who did these voyages from islands off the coast of New Britain would have gone thousand miles out there and a few thousand miles wow. to the west, bringing the news to Melanesians. But the, this leaves the question that you mentioned, what about the Micronesians? Yeah. Because Polynesians were not the people who settled islands like Guam and Ponape. Right. Language shows that those islands were settled apparently directly from the Philippines. Those again would have been long distant voyages to get from the Philippines to Micronesia like, like Ponape and, and Guam and Saipan would have been more than 1,000, maybe 2,000 miles. The people from the Philippines would have had to have rewards to induce them to do it. But again, there are lots of islands in, the, in right. that area. So we ended up with those three groups, and this is where it gets really interesting for me, because to me, these groups are really ocean people, right? They represent our ancient connection right. to the ocean, our ancient familiarity, the resources that the ocean would provide us with. And now here's where I get into dangerous ground, because I'm not an anthropologist. You know, I read, I read somewhere once that uh, being an armchair anthropologist is one of the most popular right. hobbies that right. uh, people like to do. That is, talk about it as if they knew something. But it seems to me that and <laughs> if you find indigenous communities that have lived by the ocean, they have special connections to the ocean. They have special knowledge about the ocean. They have special abilities about the ocean. I'm thinking of the Ama. I'm thinking of the Sri Lankan pearl divers. Is my assumption correct? Is there any of those groups that stand out in your mind that you could tell me about? Yeah, I can tell you about one of those groups. They're sometimes called the Sea People, basically lived on ships from the area around Sulawesi in, in, in Indonesia. They may have been the people who, from Indonesia, visited Australia, had regular yearly voyages to Australia to get, to get Besh de Mar, and introduced various Indonesian things to northern Australia. I had one run-in with the Sea People. Oh, um, it, it a ended, okay. It was a potential run-in. Yeah. It ended safely, but um, I was doing bird surveys in the western Papuan Islands. I had heard that there was a beautiful lagoon with undercut coral masses, but we couldn't find the entrance to the lagoon. So we were looking around, and then on a beach, I saw um, a couple of big canoes pulled up, and I and my friend went over to the beach to ask the people on the beach, where's the entrance to the lagoon? As we landed on the beach, I realized Jared, this is a potential mistake. These are really rough-looking people. <laughs> um, you've walked into them. Um, this is like hummingbird mites landing on hummingbird flowers where they're going to get impaled by the previous occupants. So I've landed on the beach to ask them my innocent question. Are they going to rob me or kill me? Because they're really rough-looking people. Yeah. And I asked them my innocent question. Duh, duh, duh. I talked to them about birds. I said, have you seen this bird? I yeah. imitated some birds. <laughs> do you know? Do you know this bird? And they were friendly, and they chatted, and they didn't rob me. But those were sea people. Okay. Okay. That was my first encounter with with sea people. It ended happily, but it reminded me afterwards 
that if you see people on a beach, don't just automatically go up to them because it might be a bad idea. Yeah, you gotta be careful. Yeah, I've had some firsthand experiences with some of these cultures. And uh, as you know, one of my uh, places where I've done a lot of work is in Kiribati. And I was out diving one day on a boat. And I, when I surfaced, my friends on the boat were looking at the horizon, pointing at this cloud and talking in Gilbertese. I didn't know what they were saying. And I got my gear off and I said, well, what are you guys talking about? And they said, oh, we're just looking at the green cloud. Oh, and I yeah. said, what green cloud? <laughs> And they said, the green cloud over there. And I looked really hard. I said, oh, yeah, there was kind of a green tinge to the cloud. And they said, that means there's an island seven miles away under that cloud. You couldn't see the island. But what we were seeing is the reflection of the vegetation up into the cloud. And it was one of a thousand or more navigation techniques that they had developed, you know, over the generations and millennia and centuries that they'd learned about the ocean and they learned the cycles and this indigenous knowledge. And I've always wondered about how this knowledge is transmitted. Like you mentioned the volcano over the horizon and also the bushfire in Australia, right? Now, I'm guessing that there was a bushfire once and somebody recorded it and told their kids about it. And then the kids told their kids about it. And then maybe there was another bushfire a few generations later, and they said, oh, there was this story about something over there. And it probably might have been a thousand years of stories until somebody got the gumption up to say, let's go see what's going on over there. I mean, it wasn't like you see a bushfire one day and the next week they're building a boat to go check it out, right? I mean, what, what are your thoughts about how this kind of knowledge is, is transmitted? Well, here are three associations. Let's do them in pieces. Okay. F- first, your green cloud association. My green cloud, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I'm telling the story not to put you down, okay. um, but here goes the story. Go ahead. <laughs> there was a New Zealander, possibly a physician called David Lewis, who played a role in, quotes, rediscovering traditional navigational techniques because he went to Micronesia and he went out with traditional navigators, spent a lot of time learning their traditional navigation techniques and how they learned to navigate based on bioluminescence patterns and waves and, of course, the sun and the stars and winds and this and this and that. And he felt that he was beginning to understand them and getting good at Oh, and seabirds and getting good at recognizing when there was an island off right, there. Right. Well, one day he was out with his Micronesian friends, and in the distance there was a cloud. And on the underside of that cloud was what you saw. There was a faint green, green coloration on the underside of the cloud. So he thought, aha, that means that that cloud is over an island. And I have gotten really sharp now because I've learned to spot that. But these Micronesians with me, they they didn't notice it. And I'm getting as good as or better than them. So he began getting very excited and said, did you see that? Look, there's there's green under that cloud. That means that there's an island there. Didn't you notice it? Why did you tell me that? And their response was, that green under a cloud as a mark of an island, that's so obvious that even Europeans notice that. We didn't want to insult you by pointing that out. That's great. Well, you know, it it was obvious once it was pointed out to me. And I, Jared, you know, I've spent my life at sea, and I had never noticed this green tinge, but now I see it everywhere I go when I look for it. So a second thing, um, you you asked about what we can learn from traditional societies. For me, the biggest single lesson that I've learned from traditional societies, which drives most of my friends and my sons and my wife crazy, Um, is my attention to anything that could go wrong, my paranoia. I think of it 
is paranoia is something that sends you to a psychiatrist. My paranoia is constructive paranoia. Right. It's virtuous. It's it's, it's help, helps me in life. Um, I think of whatever could go wrong, and as a result, I avoid trouble right. in a way that most Americans don't. I learned paranoia, of course, from New Guineans, and the the first incident that drove it home to me was in 1966 when I was with a batch of New Guineans studying birds on a mountain and it was time to shift camps and go up the mountain and establish a camp a few thousand feet higher up. So we marched up the mountain and in the afternoon we arrived at what seemed to me like a perfect place for campsite. It was where the ridge broadened out. There was a steep drop off so I could stand at the edge of the ridge and look out at, at parrots and swifts. And on the ridge, there was an enormous tree, straight trunk, and so I told the New Guineans with me, drop the gear and pitch my tent under that tree. What a beautiful sight to spend a week. And they really got agitated, really agitated. And they said, no, what's the matter? Mm -hmm. And finally they said, look at that tree. It's dead. It might fall over on us. I looked, okay, the, the tree was dead, but it was a tree about nine feet in diameter and 100 feet high, and I said, yeah, it'll fall over 75 years from now. Certainly not going to fall over tonight, precisely when I'm sleeping under it. But no, there was no way that they would sleep under that tree. I did, they slept about 100 yards away, and of course, the tree didn't fall over me that night. But as time went on, sleeping out in the jungle of New Guinea, every night, somewhere in the distance, you hear it, a dead tree crashing and falling. And eventually, I did the numbers, and I thought to myself, every night you hear a dead tree crashing. The chances that if you sleep under a dead tree one night, it's going to hit you, it's say one in a thousand. Forget about it. But if, like New Guineans and like me, you're going to spend three years sleeping out in the jungle, and you develop the bad habit of sleeping under dead trees, right. after three years, 1,065 nights, with a one in 1,000 chance each night, you're going to be dead within three years. New Guineans learned to think of well, yeah. the influence of rare events that will catch up to you, and that is the most profound lesson that I've learned from New Guineans. That's an amazing story, and I've got one for you. <laughs> we were diving in Antarctica some years ago, and we used to do this thing where we would anchor to icebergs, right? And we were diving down the edges of it. It was grounded, actually, in a place called Hallett Bay. So a very old chunk of an iceberg, you know, it was the size of a city block, but small by Antarctic standards. And we were actually underneath it so I could age it because I could see the growth of the invertebrate uh, marine life underneath it, which told me how long it had been there. It had been there a number of years, some three, four years. So we finish our diving and uh, we're going to spend the night. And uh, I wanted to stay anchored to the iceberg because I thought it was a nice, nice protected place and everything, but no, no, the, the, the crew said, we are not going to stay anchored to this iceberg. I said, well, it's been here for five years. What are, what are you worried about? They said, they said, no. So we pulled the anchor off the iceberg, and then we headed out in the middle, dropped the anchor where it's supposed to be, and we're sitting there, and then that night, right. the iceberg came apart. That's right. It sort of collapsed, and as an iceberg collapses, it spreads out really rapidly because all the ice floats, and it, it, was, a, it was catastrophic. I'm not so sure it would have killed us, but it certainly would have damaged the boat and set us back. So I get the dead tree thing, because in my case, it's the iceberg thing. <laughs> right. Here's an interesting example, Greg, of where people learn to ignore those risks. If your lifestyle, if making your living and getting your food requires you to undertake risks, 
But if you expect to live to 90 anyway, like I do, then you don't take those risks. But if your lifestyle means that no matter how careful you are, you'll be dead in 30 years, then you take the risk. An example is the, the Inwood. Um, traditionally, Inwood um, got a lot of their food by spearing um, seals at holes in the ice. They'd go out onto ice flows, onto ice along the coast, and wait at a hole for a seal to come up and then spear the seal. But there's a risk, which is that the ice mass will detach and you'll be carried out to sea. And therefore, if an inward expected to live 90 years, you're not going to go out onto ice flows um, because you'll be dead. But the reality for, for traditional Inuit um, is that their life was so risky that even the best Inuit hunter would make a mistake and would expect to live only a 30, 40 years anyway. And so the Inuit did things that they knew were dangerous going out onto ice flows because that was the only way that they would get their seals, but they also knew that in 30, 40 years they're going to be dead anyway, so they'd better take these risks. Oh, Whereas you and I yeah. hope that we're going to be alive at 90, 95, and therefore, therefore I would not sleep under a dead tree. No, no, and I don't anchor to icebergs anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jared, you had a third point that you were going to tell me about. What was that? Here's an example of traditional knowledge being passed on for many centuries. It involves Polynesian inter-island voyaging. By the time that Captain Cook came out into the Pacific in the 1770s. The Polynesians had stopped inter-island voyaging roughly around 1400. And so it's 370, nearly 400 years since Polynesians made long distance voyaging. Captain Cook is in Tahiti. And in Tahiti, he falls in with a young Tahitian who's, I, I think, the, the descendant of a family of traditional navigators. The young Polynesian then begins to tell Captain Cook about various islands out there that he's never seen, right. but he's heard of them and he's right. got the names of them. One of Captain Cook's associates then asked this Polynesian to name the uh, and to point the direction. The Polynesian pointed the directions very exactly, and then Captain Cook's associate made a map, and the map shows at different angles lots of islands with the names of those islands and the distances, because this Polynesian said, that island is three, three days away, that island is two weeks, that's four weeks away. So he came back with a map, and eventually the, the map with the names was compared against existing Polynesian islands. And they're the actual names of Polynesian islands up to thousands of miles away, and this young Polynesian, he had the angles correct, and he had the, the sailing times, the sailing distances correct. Wow. This was knowledge that was passed on that we, was remembered for, does that for map centuries. Does that map exist, the one that Cook or, or, oh, yeah. or whoever it was on the boat drew it, the paper and everything, the, the original? Absolutely. Like, yeah. to look if, at that. if you read the books of Captain Cook's voyages, this map is often reproduced. The one that they sketched there on the beach in Tahiti That's that right. Day. The name wow. of the Polynesian, I think his name began with T. T, it was Tanoa or something like that. Something, Ten, yeah, but I, it's an unmistakable map. And, and they, didn't they take him with them on the boat as they explored and he was able to talk to different people? Is That's that right, yeah. yeah. When they landed in islands like Hawaii. Hawaii had been discovered and colonized by Polynesians at least 700 years before Captain Cook came to Tahiti. Captain Cook, quote, discovered, rediscovered Hawaii, but he, he had a Polynesian with him. And when they landed, and it happened not just at Hawaii but at other islands, the Polynesian from Tahiti 
encountered these Polynesians onshore whose language had diverged for seven centuries. And so there were differences, but nevertheless he could converse with them as if we today discovered an island that had been colonized after the time of Beowulf, but a bef little before Chaucer. And uh. we spoke with, with people speaking Old English. Yes, it's hard work to understand Chaucer, but nevertheless we could decipher something of it. And oh. that's, that's what That's the best explanation with. I've had, yeah. actually, thank you. Because yeah. I've, I've thought about the, these, these dialects in the Pacific and how they're different, but uh, using that to help me get it is a good one. And isn't Icelandic the original Old English? No, Icelandic is basically Old Norse. Iceland Old Norse. was colonized from Norway, and it's a Scandinavian language, whereas Old English um, is derived from Frisian, the language that's now spoken on the coast of the Netherlands and Germany. The Anglo-Saxons and Jutes, who were the people who colonized um, Britain, driving, driving out the Celts. The Anglo-Saxons and Jutes came from the coast of Netherlands and Denmark and Germany, and Frisian is still spoken there. So the Frisian is the modern language most closely related to English. And Old English, of course, is even closer to Frisian. So when you look at this root South Pacific language, did that extend to Melanesia and Micronesia and all the island groups, or was there, were there any differentiations in there, or was that, is it one cluster? There are multiple languages out there. All Polynesian languages are derived from an inferred proto-Polynesian, and by comparing the different modern Polynesian languages, you can recognize the commonalities and figure out what proto-Polynesian was like. So all Polynesians have languages derived from a single language, which is presumably the language of the Lapita colonists. Yeah. But after the Polynesians came out, there were other people, the Melanesians, Melanesians who came out, so that, for example, on Vanuatu, they're not Polynesian languages. They're Melanesian languages, possibly from a couple of sources, because after the Polynesians settled Vanuatu, they then went back and they brought Melanesians out with them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, here's a good, here's, yeah. here's a, uh, probably a grisly example of language replacement. In the Solomons, there are so-called Polynesian outliers in the Solomons. The Polynesians went east, all the way to Easter Island, but then they started coming back, and they also sent prospecting voyages out to the west. And most of these prospecting voyages ended up on islands that, where they were settlers, and the settlers would kill or drive off the Polynesians. The westernmost island that Polynesians succeeded in occupying is an outlier of the Solomons called Rennell Island. Rennell is famous because it's got the biggest freshwater lake of the Pacific, which is the Old Lagoon, Rennell was a coral reef that got lifted 30 feet up into the air, and the old lagoon then became this big freshwater lake. The people of Rennell Island today, um, they speak a Polynesian language, but they're somewhat dark-skinned, they're darker-skinned than Polynesian, and they have a, a tradition that's, that said, when we arrived at Rennell, on Rennell there were a people there, the Hiti, and eventually we, we killed the Hiti, and came to occupy Rennell Island. But the fact that the Rennell Islanders today are darker skinned than other Polynesians implies that, yeah, they killed the Hiti, but they didn't kill all of the Hiti. <laughs> you know, you're talking about language. I was just with some friends, colleagues of mine from uh, Micronesia. I was in Fiji about a week since I've seen you. I was down in Fiji, and they're professionals, and they wanted to show me, one of them wanted to show me some text that he was having with his, his Micronesian colleague from Kiribati. And I, it was just a 
business text, and I, I read it, and then I, I said, hey, wait a minute, why are you guys writing in English? It's your second language. <laughs> and they spoke perfectly good English. One of them it was pretty heavily accented, and I could see him searching for words once in a while, but perfectly fluent in English. And I, why don't you guys use Gilbertese when you're talking to each other in your texts? And he says, oh, that's an easy answer, Greg. And I said, what is it? He said, if we used our native language here, it would have to be much longer. That's also, Greg, a, a, a story of some economic significance to me because my books get translated into other languages. That's right. And from the editions, um, I can see how much longer or how much shorter another language takes to represent oh. my English text. What I notice in my German and Italian translations are about 30 to 50 percent longer than my original English. And the consequence of that is that, for example, my book Guns, Germs, and Steel in English is about 500 pages long and it's not too heavy. But Guns, Germs, and Steel in German is about 900 pages. And my last trip to Germany, my German friends, when I told them that I, I'm working on a new book, they said, Jared, can't you please make your new book shorter than your previous one because your previous book, it's so heavy that <laughs> when, when, we, when we try to read it in bed and are holding it above us, it's just too heavy and it hurts our necks and our hands. <laughs> it is funny, I, I've noticed that with Spanish because you see a lot of bilingual signs on trains and stuff and it's, in English it'll be, in an emergency, go to the end of the train. Yeah. And then in Spanish it's, uh, in the moments of extreme anxiety, go to the extreme end of the, it's about <laughs> twice as long. You mentioned Guns, Germs, and Steel, what a landmark book. How did you come up with that title? It's a great title, I mean. Uh, there is a backstory. My wonderful, beautiful wife, Marie, oh, here who we go. contributes okay. so much to my happiness. When I had finished Guns, Germs, and Steel and was trying to figure out a title, my editor, wonderful editor at Norton, came up with suggested titles. My book agent came up with, I came up with suggested, none of them were any good. And finally- What were some of the ones before? Yeah. Greg, I've suppressed the memory. They were eclipsed by guns, germs. And Marie came up with guns, germs, and steel. Virtue of guns, germs, and steel is that they're monosyllables. Yeah. And it's it's like Beethoven's fifth. Oh, guns, three. It's guns, three. germs, and steel. Three's a lucky number, yeah. yeah. My editor in New York objected, but the sequence is wrong. First came germs, germs and then gun, and then steel. Steel, right. And then guns. But I said, Marie is right. Who cares about that logical sequence? Guns, germs, and seals oh, sounds yeah. good. It's a great and title. then, then quite a few of my foreign editions made the mistake of just translating it literally. And uh, for example, the Italian title of Guns, germs, and seal, Armi, Acciaio, e Malattia. It's dreadful. It's, <laughs> it's a literal translation of Guns, germs, and steel. But the Italians fail to fail to realize that the important thing about it is the sound quality. They yeah. didn't. They did not get Italian monosyllables. <laughs> you know, I think I've mentioned to you over the years that uh, P Peter Benchley, the, the writer of uh, Jaws, was one of my very closest friends. He's passed away now, but I'll give you the quick backstory in the title of Jaws, because it became uh, kind of a moniker in our culture, right? Jaws, the movie about the sharks and all that. I remember Peter telling me the story. He said, Greg, we were going to press and we didn't have a title. He'd written the story about a shark that laid siege to a resort community, but no title. And his father was a writer, and he, his father gave him some ideas. Uh, darkness lives below the water, uh, you know, danger at night. Uh, there was all these things. And, and finally, his publisher got so frustrated with him, he said, okay, Peter, we're going to call it Jaws. 
And Peter said, Jaws, well, that's weird. He said, What's that mean? You know? <laughs> and I think that was one of the big selling points of that whole book, actually, was it was a great title. It was just this one word, like, boom, title. But yours has, does have that three, lucky number, staccato ring to it. We've just done that, Greg, to my current book. So the current book, which will come out next May, for years, my prospectus and the, the working title was Crisis and Change. Yeah. I thought, boy, that's a good title, short words, and it captures the subject of the book, which is that national political crises. But then a friend to whom I gave the book to read, um, she pointed out, Jared, there are 87, you just Googled, there are 87 books with the word crisis in the title. And worse yet, in 1974, my own publisher, Little Brown, had published a book whose title was Crisis, Change, and something. The words are just too common. Can't you find a one-word title which does not frequently appear in titles. So we try to find a one-word title. <laughs> Once again, my beautiful wife, Marie, to whom I enjoy uh, oh so much, Marie was brainstorming with her cousins, and up it came, Upheaval. And so the, the title of the book will be Upheaval. Oh. The subtitle then goes on to other stuff, but at wow. least it's a one-word title. Hey, we're breaking some news on this, on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Upheaval, that's, that's, yeah. so it's going to be a great book, everyone. Make sure you go out and get Upheaval. <laughs> uh, probably by the time this podcast comes out, it'll be out. You know, we talked about indigenous coastal groups and how they you know, would see an island and voyage mm -hmm. to it, or they'd see green on the cloud, and there's any number of other things that that are used, but there's also some physiological things mm -hmm. about humans in the ocean, and especially women. Can you just talk about that a little bit? I mean, it's, it's an interesting part of it for well, me. Well, especially women, because especially men. You and I grew up on the coast of New England, right. and yes, on the south side of the Cape, it's warmer in the north, and the bay, I think, is warmer than, than the ocean. But boy, I can tell you that Bar Harbor and Mount Desert Island, the ocean was cold there, and yet, yet I swam the cold ocean then, I wouldn't now. In Tasmania, Aboriginal Australians filled up all of Australia. Tasmania was periodically connected and disconnected from the Australian continent because the seas between Tasmania and Australia are shallow. As sea level dropped during the Ice Ages, Tasmania would get connected and then as sea level rose. Well, they could just walk across? Yeah. In, really? Oh, I didn't oh, know that. Oh, yeah. Okay. The way that Aboriginal Australians got to Tasmania and the way that kangaroos got to Australia and the way that emus, flightless birds, got to Australia was... The, so it's just like the Alaska-Russian route? Exactly. Sort of okay. It was a land bridge. Yeah. They walked there, and so they arrived 30,000 years ago, and then sea level rose for the last time 10,000 years ago, turning Tasmania into an island. But Tasmanians did not have boats. They, they had bark rafts or bark canoes that waterlogged rather quickly. So they, they could only go at most a few miles with a boat. The waters around Tasmania are very cold, and yet the waters, they're, they're rich in seafood, such as lobsters and, and mollusks, uh, which means that if you're willing to dive into those really cold waters, there's good stuff there. When Europeans discovered, quotes, discovered Tasmania around 1800, they observed what the Tasmanians did and how they made their living. The way that Tasmanians got their lobsters and clams was that the, the women, not the men, would go diving and they would go down there and get the lobsters and, and bring them back to the beach. They would then huddle, shivering next to a fire. The men would take the lobsters and clams away from them and cook the lobsters and clams. But the men never did diving because women have more body fat mm -hmm. than men and women can stand it 
better than men can. Women have an extra layer of subcutaneous fat, I believe, which gives them the insulation. And I know that when uh, Magellan came around the tip of South America, you were the first person to ever tell me about this group. He was the first European to, to get down to the very bottom tip of South America. What did he find there? He found Native Americans, yep. the, the, the inhabitants of Tierra del Fuego, the, the southern island detached from South America. There were three groups there, the Yagan, the Ona, and the Alakalof. There, of those three groups, I think two have died out and one there were just a few people left. Darwin also visited Tierra del Fuego and he, he was impressed by the fact that these people were going around in this sleeting climate where there's just sleet coming horizontally at you. And they were, were wearing very little, just as the Tasmanians in Tasmania where there's snow, the Tasmanians did not have tailored clothes they sometimes would have a kangaroo hide thrown about their back. Physiologically, they were adapted to living in these really cold climates. And this was then tested by a famous Norwegian physiologist called Per Scholander. Scholander was a metabolic physiologist who went around the world studying the physiology of all sorts of people like Aborigines in the Australian desert. But among other things, he went to Tierra del Fuego he wanted to understand how Fuegians could deal with this cold Didn't climate. they die, the Fuegians? They went to the ocean, didn't they, to collect food? The Fuegians? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They, they would also that's get, cold. That's really cold water there. Sure. Yeah. Okay. yeah, they would get food from the cold water as well. Yeah. So Scholander, to measure their metabolic adaptations, he routinely tested people's reaction to cold by having people put a leg in a tall bucket of ice water, and then he would measure when they would start shivering and their drop in core temperature. There's a wonderful picture showing side by side a Fuegian with his foot in an ice bucket and one of Scholander's Norwegian colleagues with his foot in the ice bu bucket. And after 15 minutes, the Norwegian is shivering and can't stand it. And the Fuegian is just sitting there, <laughs> <laughs> locked out after half no an hour. No problem, huh? No, no problem. But um, similarly, the Inuit are known to be able to tolerate cold much better there. Now, let's talk about tolerating heat and Japanese. So Japan is temperate. There's no tropical part of Japan. This now has to do with the function of our sweat glands. Right. Um, if you look with a microscope at your skin, you will see that you have more sweat glands on your skin than you have droplets of sweat when you are sweating which means that of, the, of your anatomical sweat glands, some are functional and some are non-functional. Here was the observation that set that off. After World War I, the Japanese occupied German tropical colonies. The, they occupied Guam, Saipan, Rotan, and Tinian. And so Japanese, lots of Japanese colonists went out to these tropical islands. Baby Japanese were born there. Some of the colonists from mainland Japan went out there as one-year-old babies, settled the Mari tropical Marianas. Some Japanese born in Marianas would go back to Japan at six months, one year, four years, and so on. And some Japanese physiologists noticed that some Japanese are comfortable in the Marianas and some are not comfortable. And then they began looking at the skin, and they noticed some sweat glands become functional. For you and me, Greg, probably huh. half of our sweat glands are functional. They then looked at functionality of sweat glands in 
Japanese from mainland Japan who went to the Marianas at one month, six months, a year, two years, four years. They also looked at Japanese born in the Marianas who came back to mainland Japan at different ages. And it turns out that the, that the percentage of your sweat glands that are functional depends upon the climate that you're experienced during your first two years of life. If you're growing up in a tropical climate for two years, then essentially all your sweat glands become functional. Whereas if you're growing up in a cold climate, then only half of your sweat wow. glands become functional. But what counts is where you spend the first two years. And so Japanese who were born in the Marianas oh. and at the end two years came back to mainland Japan were comfortable in mainland Japan in the hot summer. Whereas Japanese from mainland Japan or Japanese born in the mainland Japan who went out to the Marianas after age three, half of their sweat glands remain non-functional. So it helps you cool. Yes. It helps you cool, and that's an example of what's called critical period programming. Right. This is a big thing in development. You, um, similarly with your eyes, whether you can see for the first six months determines whether you'll ever be able to see. But it illustrates that your experiences in your first either six months or two years, a critical period that depends upon, varies with Does you. it make people that were born in the tropical place does it make it harder for them to stay warm in a cold place? I don't know whether the opposite, the, the, the opposite, opposite has been done. Because, you know, there's always that thing about thin blood. There was a scientist, I believe his name was Haldane, made the mm. remark that only humans can run a mile, mm. swim a mile, climb a tree, and then dive down into the ocean mm. like 30 feet mm. of all animals on the planet. What are your thoughts on the influence of the ocean on human evolution and on human behavior in society, if you have any? And I know this... Right there, I've just outlined your two or three books you can probably write. But <laughs> sort of top of mind for our audience and for me. I'm brainstorming that the oceans lacked influence on human physiology and behavior until whenever we started gathering seafood. The archaeological record suggests that the first documented gathering seafoods, the first middens, are something like 100,000 years ago. Or one can argue maybe they were 200,000 years right. ago. But they were not middens one million years ago. So at some point, relatively recently, when we were Homo sapiens, not Neanderthals and not Homo erectus, but when we were sapiens, and possibly when we were behaviorally modern sapiens, that's when we started to exploit marine resources. But then this goes back to the point, Greg, that, that I mentioned about Native Americans from the Pacific Northwest being hunter-gatherers, but settled in permanent villages, and Native Americans, the Calusa tribe of Florida. On the seacoast, there are places on the seacoast where the food sources are rich and hunter-gatherers can settle down. But for the most part, hunter-gatherers on land don't settle down except in the richest places. And so it's possible that, that starting to occupy, starting to utilize marine resources meant the beginning or at, any, at least an acceleration of permanent settled mm. living. Mm. But permanent settled living is is significant because it has at least two further consequences. One is churning out babies. If you're a nomad and you're going to shift camp every day, a child cannot keep up with the adults until the child is about four years old. And therefore, nomadic societies cannot grind out babies every two years because the mother and father they can carry one baby, but they can't carry two babies. And so nomadic societies 
use various ways of regulating childbirths or preventing conception uh, so that they space their children four-year intervals. Only when you settle down made possible a population explosion. That's one consequence of right. settling down. Right. But the other consequence of settling down is that, again, if you're going to shift camp every day, you do not want to have a printing press or atomic bomb to carry along with you every day when you shift camp. Nomads cannot afford to have heavy technology. Nomads, in fact, nomads don't have pottery. It's only settled hunter-gatherers, like the hunter-gatherers of Japan and the coast of China, that have, have pottery. So once you settle down, you can then afford to have heavy technology, but also once you settle down, it means you've got a richer lifestyle, you've right. got stored food, and that stored food can then be used to feed people who become specialists and sit there in camp playing with dirt and stumble on the idea of pottery and stumble on the idea of copper and bronze and eventually atomic bombs. Right, right. You made the great argument about a hunter-gatherers could settle down perhaps with an ocean uh, providing food. Do you think it also had any effect on our brain development? Seafood accounts for something like one-third of the protein of the world's human population and disproportionately about right. poorer people. The opposite example is the New Guinea Highlands, where I've done so much of my work. New Guinea Highlanders, um, their diet is especially starch root crops. There's not much meat in the New Guinea Highlands because the big animals were all exterminated 50,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. The meat that's available now is kangaroos, but they've gotten really rare. Um, rats, spiders, literally my, my first morning, Greg, in the New Guinea Highlands in 1964 when I arrived exhausted from my overnight flights. And the next morning, they were going out hunting. Boy, big excitement. We go out into the garden. They hunt. And then I hear excited cries, yep. and they're surrounding a big brush pile. Like, oh my God, they've, they've cornered a big kangaroo. Wow. And a little child goes into the brush and then comes out holding two baby wrens that weighed about one-sixth of an ounce each. Well, to get their protein, have to resort to small things. New Guineans eat frogs. They, New Guineans eat, eat spiders, sizable spiders. But a consequence is that kwashiorkor, the disease of protein deficiency, is widespread in the, in the New Guinea Highlands. People get reddish or orangish hair from protein deficiency. When I brought my wife, Marie, for the first time to New Guinea this September, one of the things that struck Marie and really depressed her was to see the kwashiorkor, or the protein deficiency, was just common in New Guineans because they were on a low protein diet. But once you're on the seacoast and you've got all these fish, hunter gatherers on the seacoast do not have kwashiorkor. Okay. People have a natural affinity for the ocean. I find it fascinating that here we are, a primate, right? Mm. Evolutionary mm. tree takes us back to the, the primate mm. world. But where do people go when they want to go on a vacation in modern society? They go to the ocean. They don't go climb a tree. Uh, some people enjoy the forest, yes. And, uh, and we live along the coastline uh, for commerce reasons, yes. Do you think there's any argument to there being an affinity, a natural affinity to the oceans by human homo sapiens? Yes, yes, Greg, you can make an argument. Whether the argument is correct, I don't know, but you, you can make an argument. And another example, people making that argument has to do with claimed human fondness for the savanna. Yeah. Uh, so when you show people pictures of an open landscape, a parkland, a dense forest, etc., um, it's said that the pictures that people pick out they don't like bare, open grassland like steppe. They don't like closed forests. What they really like is an open parkland, savanna. 
and it's claimed that, that that's a legacy, maybe even a genetically programmed legacy, of a having, or having evolved in savannas six million years ago and stayed in savannas for four or five million years. That's long-standing programming, but I can imagine that people have been using the ocean for 100,000 years, but 100,000 years is long enough for genetic programming. So maybe the reason why you and I were taken by our parents to <laughs> Nantasket Beach <laughs> and then to Falmouth and Woods Hole and to Bar Harbor was 100,000 years of programming for the oceans. <laughs> I got a simple question. Do you have a favorite ocean animal? When you ask me, do I have a favorite ocean animal, I cross out the word ocean. I translate mm -hmm. your question to, do I have a favorite animal? We'll go there. And my favorite animal, New Guinea tree kangaroos. They are so adorable. <laughs> um, so I discovered a previously unknown population of tree kangaroos in the uninhabited Foyer Mountains of Indonesian New Guinea. They are red and yellow and pink with spots. You discovered this? I the discovered species? Wow. I, I discovered them. That's yeah. a big deal. When I was helicoptered into the Foyer Mountains, um, there were these tree kangaroos, and they were tame because they had never seen people. Um, so they're, they're the most colorful marsupials, red, yellow, pink spots and stripes. What did you name them? What's, what was your Latin scientific name? What oh, did you? I didn't collect. I didn't oh. collect. Yeah, oh. because the, these are uninhabited mountains, and I wasn't doing any. Collection. Oh, so you did observational. Yeah, it, it was observational. This tree kangaroo, it's so adorable. You know, it's childlike. It's got a short nose and short limbs. And uh, <laughs> um, um, Lisa Daybeck, a wonderful mother of tree kangaroo conservation, sends out a annual report, and her annual report just arrived with a pair of tree kangaroos on the cover. Marie bonded. I saw that Marie took that magazine, put it, um, it it's on our bathroom now where she's going to... I bet their eyes are big too, right? Oh, their eyes are big too. And today I have an email going out to Lisa Daybeck saying, Lisa, can you send us a PDF so that I can blow it up and get a big picture of those tree kangaroos for my Because I've just noticed people love creatures with big eyes. It's, it's, I think yeah. it's part of our programming. Yeah. And it's one of the things that's helped uh, uh, pinniped or seal conservation mm -hmm. is all you need to do is have a seal you know with those big brown eyes looking up at you and you want to pull out your wallet and you know spend money to, to conserve them whales too there are dozens of things that I can add but let me add one specific yeah. thing and that's the the end of Polynesian inter-island voyaging mm -hmm. so why is it that Polynesians beginning around 8800 started heading off in every direction Evident, oh, in yeah. order to discover all those islands, they had to take a bearing. They had to say, I have a hunch that, that the rising of Capella, that there's land out there, and so they, they go out. And there was inter-island voyaging. We know from, from about 800 to AD 1400, and AD 1400, it stopped. Why did it stop? Yeah. Here's my guess for why it stopped. Inter-island voyage, why would you do something as suicidal as set off in a canoe? Well, every now and then a canoe comes back, and it says, I've discovered this landmass where there were big flightless birds and it's uninhabited. This is a great place to colonize. And so as long as every now and then a voyager came back and said, I've discovered an uninhabited island, that would then motivate further people to come oh. out. But by AD 1400, every scrap of land in the Pacific had been colonized. And it meant that when Polynesians headed out and they landed somewhere, they got killed on the beaches. And so either nobody came back or out of the canoe of 60, two came back and said the other 58 were killed there. And so my guess is oh. that, that it's when 
I love that available targets disappeared that inter-island. I love that explanation. Isn't that a good example of Occam's razor? I, I think know. so too. There, there, are, there are, of course, other theories. There are anthropologists and archaeologists who say it's because of change in the ocean currents or a change in the wind currents or a shift in star patterns or a rise in sea level. Duh, 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 duh. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. my guess is it's human psychology. Uh, maybe you can come back for another episode sometime. Gladly. All right. Thank you very much, Jared, for taking me on a fascinating ride uh, of talking about these things. I've always enjoyed it. And thank you, listeners, for being with us this week.